This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Carl Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He earned his MA in classics from the University of Cambridge and his PhD in church history from the University of Aberdeen. Professor Truman has a distinguished career both as a teacher and author, having published several books on Reformation theology, historiography, and biographies on figures such as John Owen and Martin Luther. His most recent book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution. It's a timely, very important book, and it's the topic of our conversation today. Carl Truman, welcome to Thinking in Public. It's great to be here, Al. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, a really outstanding book. Uh, I think one of the books that has contemporary uh, immediate relevance, but I, I think uh, you've written a book that is going to be referenced for a very long time. I, I hope so. I think the issues yeah. it raises go have significance beyond the mere topic of, of the sexual revolution, which was the culminating point of the book, of course. But I hope right. it will help Christians to to think critically about culture and about some of the broader issues in our culture for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. The uh, title, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the uh, subtitle, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Uh, that's, uh, that has quite a subtitle, but, uh, your title immediately caught my mind because, uh, the three most important conversation partners in your book have been the same for me, uh, for uh, 30 plus years of my life. And, uh, I, I think you've written a brilliant synthesis, but also an engagement uh, of these issues there. You're, you're not just bringing us, uh, you know, Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre and Philip Reef, you're, uh, you're bringing us uh, a very cogent Christian, orthodox, confessional Christian uh, analysis of these issues. But it all began with a question. And uh, that question was uh, how we can understand the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, so just uh, tell us why in the world you wrote this book and, and why that question, as obvious as it might be. Yeah, well, that that question in, intrigued me. I, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'm by training, as you know, I'm a 16th, 17th century uh, mm -hmm. historian of ideas. So this is this is new territory for me. But I was at a point in my career where other historical questions were becoming mm -hmm. of, of interest, and I, I was reflecting on that question relative to my grandfather. My grandfather died in yes. 1994. And I'm pretty sure that if I'd ever said that sentence to my grandfather, he would have burst out laughing, not because he wanted to be offensive or anything, but simply because the sentence would have been utterly incoherent to him, right. the way he thinks about thought about intuitively about human personhood and about male and female would render that question uh, not just implausible but but completely absurd and I, I became interested in in trying to work out well well how have we reached a point in 2020 where not only does that statement make sense to most people it actually makes sense to people who've never sat in you know French post-structuralist seminars. It's not just the, the elite mm -hmm. intellectuals of society who claim it makes sense. It's starting to make intuitive sense to that mythical creature, the ordinary man or, or woman in the street. And I wanted to try to probe how did that come about? And of course, there are a whole host of things that society needs to have bought into 
or the yeah. society needs to have decided on before that sentence can make can make any coherent sense. This isn't the first time in human history that such a sentence becomes uh, uh, a turning point. So, uh, and by the way, I regularly go through a list of sentences that only make sense in the last ten years. And and you pointed to I think the most glaring example, but there are actually many others. But one of the things I do in talking about the history of ideas is talk about when a sentence would have become plausible, such as "I voted," uh, or uh, "I am a citizen," or "I invoke my civil rights." Uh, there, there are just a lot of sentences that a century previous uh, would have made no sense. Uh, you know, the, no one would have argued whether the sentence was right or wrong. It would have been implausible. And, and yet what we're looking at now is something that has happened at warp speed, because I dare say it's not just Carl Truman's grandfather. I think if you talked to Carl Truman, Carl Truman 20 years ago, yeah. you wouldn't have understood the sentence either. No, it would have been inherently ridiculous to me. In fact, I, uh, I remember one of my, my least insightful comments ever was at a Bible study, I think in the early 90s, where somebody raised the issue of gay marriage and I made the yeah. comment, that'll never be plausible. Well, you know, that's that's old hat compared to transgenderism. Right. So right. I think you're absolutely correct for for people of your yours and my generation. Uh, we've we've lived mm -hmm. through a a quantum leap in the way people talk about sex and gender, male and female. That you know, in in some ways, when you look back on it, is absolutely breathtaking. I mean, living mm -hmm. through it, it's all made a kind of sense, I suppose. But when, yeah, when you think back 10, 15 years ago, I remember something you wrote, I think mm -hmm. maybe a decade ago, and you said trans rights will be the big issue of the next decade. Right. And I remember reading that and thinking, that's, you know, Al Mola's off his rocker at this point. Mm -hmm. That'll never happen. Well, it's the big issue of 2020 right. in many ways. You were absolutely prophetic on that point. Well, the issue that uh, that struck me then and now, and uh, and you actually uh, confront this in your own way in the book uh, very well, is the fact that if you just look at LGBTQ, it's the T that is by far most problematic. It's it's the T that is in defiance of ontology, uh, and we're going to talk about that as we get to it. I want to I want to kind of go back uh, to uh, to the title of your book, "The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self." So let me ask you an interesting question as a theologian and historian of ideas. Uh, when did the self become a comprehensible uh, concept? Uh, that's an interesting question. And uh, I mean, on one level, one would have to say that, that, that I assume that everybody throughout history has had a, 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 a a consciousness of their own individual identity. I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul knew that he wasn't the Emperor Nero, that he had a, right. a self-consciousness. I think the, the, the real question is, when does that inner space become decisive for how we understand that self-consciousness? And one could make a case, of course, that Christianity is, is critical in that development. Paul's Absolutely. own development of the idea of a man at war with himself when right. when his will is in conflict over over the good that he would do and the bad that he would avoid uh paul sort of paves the way for that so i think that that notion of the self as having inner space really one can make the case rises by and large i think with christianity it finds a, a very fine example of course in the ancient world in the confessions of saint augustine right. so that that psychological space is really opened up by by Christianity. It's radicalized, I think, from the 18th century onwards. That's when it really starts to become the, the dominant way of, right. of, of thinking about one's identity. And, and that's what we are the heirs of today. 
I've been thinking about this for a long time as a view. And it seems to me that the self is, uh, is very present uh, in the Psalms, uh, yeah. where you have an inner conversation that is revealed, which is extremely rare in ancient literature. Let's just, let's just put it that way. The, the, the Psalms are, if not unique, then, uh, then singular, at least, in, uh, in the, uh, the honest conversation with the self, anguish, uh, celebration. Uh, and then the Apostle Paul, and then Augustine. But what is common to David and Paul and Augustine is the understanding that the self is not its own project. Uh, the the modern sense of the self is the self as a project. Yeah. And you can't yeah. get that even in the beginning of the Enlightenment. You could only get that, I would argue, uh, with the dawn of uh, kind of the modern psychotherapeutic revolution. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, thinking about Augustine, one of the challenges I had from students as I taught some of this stuff at Grove City was, what about the Psalms? What about Augustine's Confessions? Right. And of course, the as you point out there, the interesting thing is the self is not the, the ultimate project there. Right. And I, the way I put it in class, I say, you know, Augustine moves inward, Paul moves inward, simply so that he can then right. move outward more effectively and, and locate himself relative to, to God. I think you're absolutely correct in saying the, the self as a sort of constructed project Project is is a later phenomenon. It's not even really there in in Rousseau and the Romantics. I think the thing right. that saves Rousseau and the Romantics is they do believe that there is such a thing as human nature right. that has a moral structure. That uh, we're not just we're more than what we're made of. There's a moral structure to which we we all have to conform in order to be fully fully human uh, uh, human beings. The real move comes in many ways, as you point out, in the 19th century with with Nietzsche, Marx and Freud, uh, Nietzsche, Marx and Darwin in their different ways. They sort of demolish the notion of the moral structure, a, a set moral structure for humanity. And then with Freud, of course, you get the the, the final sort of lethal move on that front where, right. yeah, the, the self is a, is a project of the desires there's nothing to right. which the self is is really answerable beyond that which the self desires. So you're, you're correct absolutely on that point. Yeah, I, I've often put it this way as I'm trying to think it through. And of course, this has direct uh, relevance to our understanding of the gospel. But uh, I, if you look at David, Paul, Augustine, their concern for interiority is uh, the knowledge of how they fall short of the glory of God. It, it's it's going into the interior in order to understand their own sinfulness, uh, their own inadequacies, their own inconsistencies, with the external reality, which is of course Christian theism. It's it's a holy and righteous God. The modern self goes into the self, and only comes out of the self in order to uh, to protect the good self from the evil society, including all of its moral laws. Uh, you know, that the, the self is what's right. It's the external world that's what's wrong. It's the exact opposite of, uh, of that it, it, tradition. Yeah, and Philip Reef makes that point in his sort of analysis of therapists. He says, if you go to the Middle yeah. Ages or the Reformation, mm -hmm. the therapists are the priests or the ministers, mm -hmm. and their task is to, I think he puts it rather provocatively, their task is to explain to people why they're miserable. Their task yeah. is to confront them with the truth to which they have to conform themselves. Whereas in, in the modern era, of course, the, the therapist is, as, as you point out, precisely the opposite. The, the modern therapist is the one trying to protect people right. from the outside or when it 
manifest itself politically, trying to transform the outer culture in a way that affirms the uh, the self. And, and transgenderism is, is a sort of great example of that, because we're now finding we're in a situation where everybody's got to buy into this, because right. we don't want people feeling they're inadequate, or we don't want to hurt people. So that that therapeutic move is is directly connected, I think, to a transformation of the notion of the self and has significant political implications for us all. As a, a college undergraduate, I uh, wrote a paper on Freud. And uh, I didn't know a great deal about Freud, you know, as a 18, 19 year old. But uh, I didn't like what I found. But uh, the guide to my understanding of Freud, more than anything else, is actually Philip Reef in his uh, book, Freud, The Mind of a Moralist. Mm. And, and so I must admit that every subsequent reading I've done uh, in the primary sources of Freud's own writings, probably influenced by Philip Reef, and, uh, and, and Philip Reef could, could utter the most ultimate put down, uh, you know, where he said uh, that if you look at Freud's corpus, he said there are many truths, but there's no truth. But he did. I've not recognize, heard that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, he he did recognize the the power of Freud, and in, in fact, at one point, he said it's the most important body of thought committed to paper in the 20th century. And yet, Freud doesn't go directly uh, to the conception of the self that the average person walking on the streets thinking about. It takes it takes an incredible. Uh, confluence of uh, events to bring Freud in, in into the mind of the average American, as you say, but it has happened. Yes. Uh, I mean, I think in, in some ways, Freud has a lot going for him in terms of getting his ideas popularized because he makes sexual desire mm -hmm. the, the center of human existence and human beings, yes. you know, a, a, a large part of, of, of who we are wow. is our sexual desires. As you say, you know, Freud right. has lots of truths, even if there's no ultimate truth there. And I think that any, any thinker who plays up the, mm -hmm. the sexual aspect of human beings is onto a winner. It's, it appeals to the fallen human mind, I think, that, right. that sex is, is the meaning of existence. And it's a message that's easy to popularize. So in the book, I, I mm -hmm. pick on Hugh Hefner. I, I think that yeah. the whole playboy philosophy of sex as a, as a kind of enjoyable, hedonistic fulfillment mm -hmm. of life, that's Hugh Hefner. You don't have to read Freud to get Freud. You simply have to buy a copy of Playboy. Now, of course, we live in times when you know, Playboy is remarkably conservative compared to what's available at the, at the press of a, of a computer button. But it conveys the same basic message. We are fundamentally sexual beings, and our fulfillment is to be found in fulfilling our sexual desires. That's Freud. That's Hefner. That's modern yeah. Western culture. But Freud was a slipperier, uh, or you might say more sophisticated thinker in, in this sense. When I began my consideration of Freud, the one thing I thought I knew about Freud was that all sexual repression was wrong. But I didn't have to read far into Freud to recognize that is actually not what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very conflicted thinker on that point. On the one hand, he yeah. hates religion and he right. knows that religion is the way of maintaining sexual repression. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he, uh, and this is what I appreciate about him over against somebody like mm -hmm. Rousseau, Freud clearly understands that human beings now are very right. dark creatures uh, and understands that, that the state of nature is not this paradise so much that, that that we can go back to but is actually read in 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 tooth and claw and i think freud is much more realistic and uh, i've always felt the problem for freud was he wants to get rid of religion but he can't really find anything 
to replace it with that will will maintain the the sexual taboos uh, in the same way. So he's sort of conflicted on that point. He was conflicted uh, on the issue of uh, of religion. He felt a loss. I mean, he described himself as a godless Jew. That was his own term. But it wasn't said with vehemence. It was it was said with a I think a sense of loss. But uh, you know uh, Freud's concept of polymorphous perversity. Uh, you had someone like Foucault who would come along and, and champion that as his cause uh, to yeah. celebrate polymorphous perversity. But Freud didn't. Freud actually said that the uh, the human sexual appetite. Uh, can be so dark that it takes society that puts up some parameters. Otherwise, you get polymorphous perversity. But he had no moral standard. There was nothing. There, there was, there was. You, you point out, I think, quite, quite rightly, that uh, he had no way to describe how anything could be bounded that didn't amount to repression. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, as I say, that's the sort of the Achilles heel of, of his thinking. Yeah. It was also the, the thing that I think most disturbed me as I was working on the book that, you know, Freud, particularly as picked up by Reef, mm. is, is making right. this point that sexual taboos take you to the heart of, of what keeps a society together. And that raises the very serious question of, well, what happens when sexual taboos get dissolved, when the only thing holding us back is this very nebulous notion of consent you know what happens when that's the only thing that's holding back the the tidal wave of polymorphous perversity and that's that's one of the things that i found most disturbing as i worked on the book because i look at what's going on in american society british society western society in general and think wow if freud is correct this is this is terrifying in the long run this is this is a nightmare unfolding before us Let's talk about uh, how these ideas did come to uh, have such traction in American culture. And uh, I'll admit, uh, Carl, one of the surprises to me over the course of the last uh, decade is how what had been kind of uh, implicit in the society has now become so explicit. And I don't just mean in terms of sex. I mean in terms of the architecture of ideas. Uh, so, you know, if uh, I... I in the in the late seventies, had to confront uh, the heirs of the Frankfurt School, but you know they really were kind of an academic tribe, and uh, they they really had even kind of limited uh, influence in American academic life. You could have uh, you know Marcuse on the West Coast, uh, but but frankly, uh, and and they led a youth movement and all the rest. But I didn't see how fast. Uh, those ideas of uh, basically Marxist derivation smashed together as if in a you know a cyclotron with uh, with uh, Marx, uh, Freud, and Jung and others. How, how all of a sudden that would become so commonplace that uh, I mean Hollywood producers and directors are reckoning with these ideas and putting together the products of mass consumption. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a remarkable success story from that perspective. I mean, partly, I think it's a generational thing that you have the generation of 68 rising through the ranks of tenure, et cetera, in, in, in universities. Partly, I think you have the, the recruitment of, of pop culture for some of these ideas in a very banal form. Uh, 
Uh, and, and partly, I think they you have the advantage that that these kind of ideas do play to some basic instincts of, of fallen human beings. Mm-hmm. They are attractive in their in their nihilism and their and their destructiveness. I think so. You have a whole host mm-hmm. of things. Uh, coming together, but that's a very I, I, Christian comment. I would argue that's a very Augustinian comment. In other words, you're basically saying that uh, it was uh, that, that many of these ideas are actually uh, quite convenient in order to justify uh, certain moral inclinations that one wishes to set loose. Yeah, I, I think in some ways, I think Nietzsche nails it. This is why you know I've always appreciated Nietzsche as a very consistent kind of thinker, uh, and Nietzsche in the nineteenth century is essentially saying, you know, hey, we're there are no moral absolutes. There's no metaphysical order to which we have to be answerable. We have to rise to the challenge. We can invent ourselves. And of course, that is in in some ways precisely the dynamic of the fall. You know, did God really say where Satan challenges there, or the serpent challenges there the notion that there is some sort of intrinsic metaphysical framework that gives nature its its uh, its moral structure. Uh, and Nietzsche is, I suppose, the, the greatest and most consistent exponent of the idea that creation means nothing and therefore it's all up for grabs. Uh, The big difference, it seems to me, in the world today is between those who think there's nothing but stuff and we can just do with it what we want and those who think that there is actually a purpose, that the world is more than just the atoms from which it's made. There is some order to which it conforms. And as I say, Nietzsche, I think, is, is the man who blows the cover off that and like a lot of great thinkers, has become more significant in the 100 years, 120 years since his death and during his actual lifetime. Now, I'm tempted then on that comment to race to the end of your book, um, where, uh, again, there's a confluence between your project in this book and one of the major projects of, of, of my work right now, which uh, which gets to the issue of natural law. So, and and you suggest that one of the things the church must do is uh, is is reckon with natural law. And by the way, I'm enthusiastically in agreement with it, but not for the reasons that many of our uh, traditional Roman Catholic friends would celebrate. You know, the the idea of uh, of many Roman Catholic apologists and uh, and and uh, moral theologians of the last, let's just say, in particular, the last hundred years, has been that there's a third way of argument. And I think that third way of argument has disappeared in a, in the larger society. I actually think natural law, uh, the knowledge derived from the natural law, is actually more important for helping Christians to understand revealed truth yeah, yeah. Uh, than for an apologetic purpose in the larger society. So I, I, I have so many Catholic friends who will say you can't use scriptural arguments, you know. And I, I think of people you and I both know very well and respect and and are friends who at least, you know, 10, 15 years ago were writing, you shouldn't make explicitly theistic arguments. You should be making natural law arguments. And all I want to say is, where is the one federal judge whose mind was yeah. changed by a natural law theory? Where, where, where is the one intellectual figure in the United States you can say who said, okay, they swerved away from affirming uh, same-sex marriage because of natural law. I could wish it were true, but I don't think it is true. And so to getting back to Nietzsche, just to set it up here, I think what Nietzsche makes clear is basically it's theism or nihilism. In the end, 
I think that's absolutely the case. It's a question of does the world mean something or does it mean nothing? Mm -hmm. uh, that is the, you know, that puts it rather simplistically, but I think that's the choice. And by and large, people have opted for the, it means nothing. We can, we can impose our own uh, views and values on it today. And, and I think that that leads to precisely the point you've made about the purpose and usefulness of natural law. I don't think it, it really works very well in the public square. You could point people to statistics of STDs among the gay male community, these kind of things, but they will simply be regarded as technical problems which we have to develop technology to, to overcome. Yeah. Where natural law works well, I'm finding, is among the rising generation of, of younger Christians. You know, Grove, I have a lot of great undergraduates. They come from... Uh, good Christian homes. They 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 want to believe the Bible. They want to honor what the Bible says, but it's helpful to them to know why the Bible says it. And I think natural law right. sort of fits into that kind of framework that allows them to understand that God doesn't just randomly ban homosexuality. There's a reason for that that is reflected in the world uh, around us. And so it's a, to me, it's a, it's a kind of faith-seeking understanding project that natural law, uh, obviously rooted in and chastened by the Bible, we're good Protestants after all, but natural law has a, a, an almost catechetical function within the Christian community in helping Christians to think clearly and understand why some of these things are in place. It's very tough, I think, for kids today growing up. Many of them will have gay friends. It's much tougher for them right. to hold the biblical line on Christianity than it was for, for people of our generation. Uh, they need good reasons to be able to offer a rationale for, for why God right. thinks the way he does about these things, if that's not too crude a way to put it. No, and I think that's also a Christian way of reasoning. You know, if you uh, you consider the, uh, the the Protestant historic uh, opposition to natural law, it was opposition to a theological principle that would stand in the in the place of Scripture. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a theological principle that explicates and uh, and manifests uh, God's revelation in Scripture. You know, one of the things I point out is that if you if you have Genesis one to Genesis two. And uh, you have the construction of human beings made in God's image as male and female. And you have the conjugality, even of the establishment of marriage. And you have the, the reproduction um, uh, mandate, the, the, the creation mandate to uh, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It actually takes a sperm and an egg to do that. And it, it just so happens that the creation order that is revealed in Genesis is actually still the only way that the human, the human species can continue to reproduce. And so, yeah. but you say, and this is the thing, you know, but you say that to the average person, you know, on a college campus, not a Christian college campus, and they're going to say, yeah, but that's just awaiting a technological solution. Yeah. 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 Instrumental reason is the dominant way of thinking about these issues yeah. now. Uh, and, um, yeah, and it, it pervades Christian circles as well. That's why I think it's so important to have articulate uh, expressions of these kind of ideas for the rising generation of, of, of young Christians who are not averse to learning, right. but they do need people to teach right. them the right things in the right kind of way. Well, one of the projects I'm involved in right now is, uh, is arguing about the concept of rights, which is so central to our discourse and has mm -hmm. been for a long time. But uh, that that rights conversation has to explain why human beings 
would possess any rights, and if so, which rights human beings would possess? And and again, that takes natural law reasoning. It's it's it that you 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 don't have a simple set of Bible verses uh, to set that out. But without that that method of reasoning, uh, then there is there's no distinction between what rights we really should respect in every single human being and what actually is not rightly described as a right at all. Yes, uh, and, and again, and that sort of points towards the whole notion of teleology as well. Uh, you know, natural law, I think, needs to be constructed teleologically if it's yes. going to make biblical sense, because it has to take account of the fact that we're designed for a purpose that goes beyond our own individual pleasure, well-being, survival, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So teleology becomes part of that. It, and again, I, I think the emphasis on natural law in itself is is not enough, because you can have a natural law of rights, as you, mm -hmm. as you talk about there, that, that ultimately become kind of life, liberty, and property. Well, as a Christian, I think we want to articulate uh, an understanding of natural law that, that goes beyond that and, and shapes even how we think about those things. You deal with uh, several of the most crucial Supreme Court decisions, uh, not so much because you're really, I think, trying to argue uh, legal points, but rather you're, you're just looking at the history of ideas and how they've become represented in those decisions, but also uh, kind of institutionalized now by, by those decisions. But uh, that, that and again gets to my question of transmission. And, and, and by the way, sometimes you, the, the Frankfurt School was very interested in this idea of transmission. How, how in the world do ideas, of course, the whole idea of a cultural Marxism and the Gramsci and the, you know, uh, bringing about revolution by means of the culture rather than uh, economic uh, proletarian revolution. Uh, I'm fascinated by the issue of transmission. So uh, since you dealt with these issues so thoroughly in your book, I, I want to set out a, a situation and see if you can explain it for me. Uh, Anthony Kennedy, uh, Justice of the United States Supreme Court, author of the majority opinion in every single important uh, gay rights case, as it was called then, uh, going back to uh, Lawrence v. Texas, Windsor, you can just go down the entire list of Burgerfell, and also the, uh, the primary author of the Casey decision, uh, on abortion in 1992. So it, it turns out that uh, Anthony Kennedy was born the same year as both of my parents, 1936. A very different social structure. My parents uh, were not born to a Sacramento, California state legislator and lawyer, as was Anthony Kennedy. But uh, there's nothing in that period of time in 1936 and the thought operational in Sacramento, California that, you know, is the Frankfurt School? It's, it's not you, you. You don't have this this conception of the self evident at that point. Uh, he goes to Stanford University and uh, graduates uh, in 1958 with an undergraduate degree in constitutional law. Well, you can see where this is headed. Uh, and then uh, it turns out that in his last year at Stanford, and this is what I'm looking for. In the last year at Stanford, he went and spent his senior year studying at the London School of Economics. Then he went to the Harvard Law School and, of course, graduated in 91, eventually became a, a, a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then 1988 to 2018 on the Supreme Court of the United States. The question in my mind is, how in the world did this moral revolution end up in Anthony Kennedy? And uh, that's where, to me, the London School of Economics jumps out uh, the, that year. But by the time you have uh, the, uh, the Casey decision in 1992, Anthony Kennedy, appointed by a Republican president, supposedly a conservative, is actually perhaps the most 
effective singular person in promoting the idea of the self you've evaluated in your book? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it's an amazing story. When you set it up like that, that's a remarkable uh, odyssey, one might say, that he's he's gone through. It's hard to tell, of course, because so much of, of these these kind of decisions uh, uh, or so much of this thinking is, is sometimes shaped by personality. Right. But I also think, though, that you know, the London School of Economics may well have played a, a critical role, but there's also something in the the American notion of, of individualism that plays to this as right. well. That there's something in the, in the American notion of, of the rugged individual who's able to carve out their own destiny that is not antithetical to the kind of bizarre notion of selfhood that he articulates mm. in in Planned Parenthood. And that's why I think the story is, in some ways, it's it's a more complicated one than than left-wing radicals take over the culture and transform it. Absolutely. I think there are there are patterns uh, within within Western culture and particularly in American culture that play to this sort of individual construction of of reality. Uh, that, well to make your point, I don't think Anthony Kennedy thinks he's a liberal. No, uh, I've never seen anything to suggest that. And uh, um, I mean, on in his last ruling on, which I think was the the, the cake shop ruling, uh, he was he, he came down sort of on the right side in that one. I think. Yeah, I mean, um, I, if if you take uh, the uh, the 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 Burger Court in the Roe v. Wade decision, nineteen seventy three, with Blackman writing that majority opinion. They thought they had solved it. They thought they had created kind of a uh, a solution to the issue of abortion, you know, and with, uh, you know, following previous cases on contraception, all the rest is this this right to privacy. And and again, it was Blackman, a Republican appointed justice who wrote that majority opinion. It was a, it was presided over by Warren Burger. It was a seven two decision. I mean, it, it was uh, there were a lot of people who thought themselves conservatives who, who voted for Roe v. Wade, horrifyingly enough. And, and then you get to the you get to Casey and you go on, but uh, that particular section of uh, of the Casey decision, which turns out to be the ex, ex, actual hinge, is, is where uh, Kennedy uses the language of the uh, the meaning of the universe, the self's understanding of the totality. I mean, it's almost as if it's the most uh, quantum statement of autonomous individualism, and there it is, right in the middle of his language. Yeah, and uh, you know, just as a general comment, I would say stunningly incoherent coming from somebody who's obviously pretty intelligent. You know, generally right. speaking, real intellectual idiots don't get onto the the Supreme Court. And Kennedy's clearly an intelligent man. And to say that the state has no you know interest in the definition of the self, I would have said that yeah. most of what the state does involves definitions of the self, right. from laws about murder to decisions about uh, stimulus packages. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable statement. And as you point out, it becomes, you know, the... It, it writes into law in some ways a, a horribly vacuous definition of self into which one can pour pretty much anything you want. Right. I, I do think that uh, Antonin Scalia's dissent and his response to Kennedy in the Casey decision is uh, great literature. Oh, but yeah. It's, like especially, decisions are great literature. Uh, that, that's right. But when, when he, he refers to that paragraph in... Um, in Kennedy's Casey opinion, as the oh sweet mystery of white of life clause, as the oh sweet mystery of life clause, and uh, 
it, it is. That's a, that's a, that's exactly what it it purports to be. And and yeah. and I th I think it's going to be a huge embarrassment to the Supreme Court, but not in the short run. That's going to have to be a long. No, run. I mean the the recent uh, Gorsuch ruling in Bostock. It's, it's not a million miles away from that. I mean, no. it's, I think it's it's more thoughtful, but it's still operating with very similar premises. And again, from someone who actually uh, is incredibly well versed in making conservative natural law arguments. I mean, yeah. his, his doctoral dissertation at Oxford uh, under John Finnis is a brilliant defense of, uh, well, I'll put it this way, a brilliant opposition to an indictment of euthanasia. Uh, based upon very principles he violated in in this this decision, it's like they're two different individuals. Yeah, it's it's stunning, uh, and again, I think it it shows how much emotion often plays into decisions as well. As I say, with with mm -hmm. Kennedy, there has to be a character personality aspect right. to this, and probably with Gorsuch too, and and a, and a social issue very yeah. much. And you really, uh, I think, very uh, insightfully deal with that in the book. The 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 self is a social concept. It only makes sense as situated within a social context. And uh, you, you underline that very well. But that also points to the fact that uh, if, if you're in a social circle in which it's just the thing you do to go to a same-sex wedding or what before Oberfeld may have been a, a commitment ceremony, or if it's, if it's just the thing you do in your social structure uh, to, uh, to just basically accept all these revolutionary principles of morality, um, I think that that's going to that's going to show. In fact, uh, uh, someone has pointed out rather awkwardly that one can predict a lot of votes on the uh, Supreme Court by whether or not uh, the judge, uh, the justice had an openly gay clerk at the time. Interesting. Interesting. The social context does matter. I want to raise another issue with you, which you uh, you you point at, but don't deal with in the book. So I'm going to give you a chance to write another chapter here. <laughs> Does the self require self-consciousness? And the reason I want to get to that is because I, one of my theories is that the abortion culture and uh, the, uh, the, the anti-natalist culture, all this going on right now, a lot of that is due to the fact that the only humanity that our society now officially recognizes is a self-conscious humanity. So that, that means the unborn baby, the fetus, is not a self. Now, Peter Singer actually says this explicitly. I think it's kind of tacit in the larger culture. Yeah, I would agree. And, and this this is where I think you get down to the, the incommensurability of, of Christian arguments with the arguments of the wider culture, because I would absolutely want to maintain right. the selfhood of uh, the child in the womb uh, from the moment of conception in the same way that I would also want to maintain the selfhood of the, the elderly woman or man who is, is in the depths of Alzheimer's disease absolutely. and is really lost. You know, or in a coma. Yeah, or in a coma, I would want to say that, yes, they are persons mm -hmm. because they're made in the image of God. And of course, this is where Reef goes in, in some of his later works and saying, you know, once we lose sight of human beings made in the image of God, everything's up for grabs. And I, he uses a very provocative way of putting it. He says, you know, that his, uh, I, I think it was his father, his grandfather, who was a, a Holocaust survivor, when he was dying, said, you know, Hitler's won. Uh, and, and this is a Jewish man who survived the Holocaust saying that. And what he, what Reef says he was communicating is Hitler was the man who really dehumanized great sections of the human race by denying their fundamental humanity. And we now live in a world where we do that too. If, if somebody has Alzheimer's disease or, or it, you're dealing with a, 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 an embryo, a baby in the womb, um, then you're not, you're not dealing with a real person. 
one of the interesting things that uh, that I, I read this passage of Peter Singer to my wife when I was working on the book. He has this bit where he thinks he's being sort of kind, and he says, uh, you know, when a baby's born, you know, parents will start to bond with the child from the from the moment of birth. And I read that passage to my wife, uh, and I said to her, "What do you think of that?" And she said, "That's rubbish. I bonded with the child from the first moment I was aware yeah. it was in my womb, and at nine months, oh, I was already loved my children, even though I'd never seen them." Yes. And that struck me as, "Yeah, that's an intuition. That's an intuition that points to the fact that that which is in the womb—it's not a blob of cells, not to the mother right. anyway. It's right. already a person." He you or she see is that already in the language loved by the by yeah. the mother. You see that in the language that continues. Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, and, and Singer said that what has to uh, be present to qualify for personhood includes the ability to vision the future, a network of social relationships, and that that self consciousness. Um, but you also have people who these days say that the unborn child is not a person. I mean, that's the entire premise of the culture of death. Uh, but if it's a miscarriage, they lost a baby. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that shining through even in headlines. I mean, with the, the Duchess of Sussex just in the last few days. Yeah. Or when Lacey Peterson is murdered, uh, right. carrying a child, uh, her husband is prosecuted not for one murder, but for two murders. The, yes. the law is, is, is also conflicted. Yeah. But, but now it's conflicted between the fact that, uh, that murder and trial and conviction took place in California. But according to the law, in New York State, uh, the uh, the death of an unborn uh, human child by homicide is no longer uh, a separate crime. And Peter uh, Singer for the win. Yeah. Uh, you know, the scariest question for me to ask you is uh, is not uh, how prevalent uh, these uh, toxic ideas of the self are in the larger society. You know, if only. Uh, because the, the reality is that increasing numbers of people who sit in our churches and consider themselves Christians are actually uh, possessed by and operating out of the very same conception of the self. Yes, and that, I think, is where it's it's going to be a real challenge for the church in, in the coming years. Um, oh, one of the things I talk about in the book is the importance of the church's community as a way of, of, of forming identity in coming years. But, of course, there's also a dimension of the church's institution. And it's that institutional aspect that's, that's very hard in, in mm -hmm. contemporary culture because churches are really voluntary co-ops now right. that people opt into, opt out of travel to find one that that suits their needs uh the kind of ideas that 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 you and i want to see promoted in churches uh are, are tough ideas to promote because some people say well, they'll just drive people away and so they will and so i think the the real challenge the church faces is we've got to be a community we also have to be an institution as well. And it's that second part that I have to be honest, I have no idea how we get there at this point. That is a real mountain to climb. But again, I appreciate it, it. you're correct. That I was told when I, I was pastor for five or six years in Philadelphia, and a senior pastor said to me at one point, he said, never assume that anybody under the age of 35 agrees with you on sexual morality. He said, that's just not an assumption mm -hmm. you can make anymore. That was nearly ten years ago. Uh, the situation, I think, has to be has to be much worse in the church now. Uh, as you're thinking about those issues, uh, by the way, I think you you 
make a very important point. When uh, you you deal with the very issue you're you're now raising about the voluntarist nature of Christian discipleship and church membership in, in today's society, you even point out that that's true for the Eastern Orthodox in our society and for the Roman Catholics as much actually as it is for Protestants, because there is no sense that one is socially bound to stay in. Yeah, uh, we're, we're all Protestants now, yeah. even the Roman Catholics from that perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and you cite Charles Taylor, and I think one of the most brilliant of his uh, insights is the fact, uh, and I have to come back to it again and again and again, that uh, you know believing in God in 1500 is not the same thing as believing in God in the year 2000. And uh, I think that, that at least one major element of that is that in 2000, one decides to believe in God, whereas in 1500 there was no there was no alternative. And uh, I think that that again gets to one of our problems in the church is that. Even many people who are in the church think they're the kind of people who decided to be the kind of people who are in church. What's missing is the objective truth of God and the gospel. Yeah, and it's very hard to address that. I mean, I've I've said in I don't think I said it in the book, but I've said in lectures that in some ways the most damaging invention uh, in Western society, as far as the church is concerned, is the automobile, because yeah. the automobile frees us up to choose whichever church we wish to attend. And um, yeah, it's it's hard to know that mm-hmm. yeah, when we're all expressive individualists, when we're all consumers at some level. It's hard to see how we can we can break out of this. Thankfully, we have promises. The Lord has said, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail. The, right. the church wins in the end. But humanly speaking, it's hard to see how we can strategize uh, in the short term relative to these things. Uh, I define myself uh, in the respect I'm about to to raise as a classical Burkean. And uh, again, uh, found uh, so much intellectual grounding that I found so consistent with what we would call a biblical worldview in, in many of Burke's observations, including what, this is not a term he uses, but it's a concept of embeddedness, uh, that one is embedded in a family, in a community. And uh, thus, uh, many of the early British conservatives felt like uh, the train was the uh, would, would would be the end of village and community in town. Uh, the, the car just makes it that much worse, and the plane that much worse than that. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I mean, community is a it's a strange thing. I, I, I you know I could I could have written a book wrestling with the sentence. What is it? How has it become plausible that people can say I have pledged allegiance to ISIS online? You know, young men in London can say that and it makes sense. And that takes us to the heart of the other dimension of this. And that is, you know, technology that I don't really deal with in the book, but technology makes all of this possible. And in fact, makes all of it to some extent desirable as well, because it shapes the very desires. And accessible. And accessible. And accessible. Uh, There's just, there's just no, uh, there's no safe place on planet earth uh, from the, uh, the, ideas we're talking about here, which are, and, and the products of a consumer culture and the entertainment, you know, when, uh, I had uh, an opportunity, uh, so long ago now before I was in this job. So about 30 years ago during the Madrid peace talks, I was a part of a delegation that, uh, that went to the middle East and, uh, we met with folks ranging from the Bedouin to, well, just ever the Druze militia, everyone, but you know what? I found cable TV by satellite, I should say. Uh, in a Bedouin tent in the middle of the Negev. 
And that was a generation ago. There is no safe place on planet Earth. And when I asked the question, you know, aren't you concerned about bringing this in? He said, well, if we didn't have CNN, which was then the dominant, he said, that's how we know where it's safe to be. Uh, I thought, well, that, that's interesting. But the other thing is your teenagers are watching uh, the stuff that goes on, you know, so you, you're not, your whole world's about to be transformed in yeah, ways you don't yeah. recognize. And now we have cell phones. You know, I, I'm glad that right. I grew up uh, as a young man without access to a cell phone. At, at, least, Isn't that uh, true? at least I had something of a classical background from that perspective. Let, let me ask you another pressing question, which is raised in, in your book. And, and I'm thinking about the responsibility of the Christian church and our, our sense of self, uh, our sense of gospel, our sense of ecclesia, the, the, the conception of uh, the autonomous individual, and more than that, just uh, identity, is, I think, a far more insurmountable problem than many Christian theologians and pastors recognize. Because people are now showing up at our churches, and it's not that they are demanding so much that just what they do be accepted, but it's who I am. That that I want to ask you to to parse that out a bit. That because it, it, if if everything like this is 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 what I am, and and uh, the implication is you have to receive me as I am, or you hate me. Yeah. Uh, there's no possibility of a gospel people. No, it's. Uh, I, I thought a lot about that old, the old chestnut. Uh, you know, we we hate the sin but love the sinner idea, mm -hmm. that I think is is a good one, except of course it it doesn't compute in today's society because if the sinner sees the sin as a fundamental part mm -hmm. of their identity, then preaching against that sin is actually preaching against that person's identity. Right. It's one thing to say you're a greedy person, I hate your greediness, but I love you as you know I love you as a friend, a great guy. That works, but to to somebody involved, say in the transgender world or the uh, or, or mm -hmm. the lesbian or the gay world, to say to them, uh, I, "I hate your sin, but but I love you as a person," that's incoherent because who they are as a person is, from a Christian perspective, the sinful desires that they have and expressions they give to that. So, I think that preaching the gospel is going to be very difficult at this point. In some ways, it, it, it might make it easier on the grounds that the lines are going to be much more clearly drawn. On the other hand, it's going to make it far riskier because what we will be doing is, is challenging people's identity at, at a level that is protected by law. And that makes it right. a, a much more interesting exercise for the for the Christian church and a much more challenging exercise. Mm -hmm. But I don't see any way of soft coating that. Um, you, you, seeker sensitivity isn't going to work at this point because the whole point of the church has to be don't come as you are and leave as you are. It's come as you are and be transformed, be changed, be changed right. into somebody different. And that's going to be tough in the coming years, I think. No, I think uh, that's a prophetic word in itself. I, I mean, I think we see it right now. And so just to think of the kind of uh, landscape that you and I encountered as, uh, as, as young ministers and young theologians, um, Protestant liberalism, uh, prosperity theology, the uh, kind of psychotherapeutically directed, uh, you know, leftist evangelicalism and, and all this, none of that's going to work. I mean, I mean, you and I know it, it doesn't work because it's not true. But in, in this society, there's really not 
much traction for that once the issues become clear? No, uh, the, none at all. And of course, a lot of that, I think, was motivated by by the idea of of wanting to try to conform to those things in society which were perceived yeah. to be good. And that's very hard for Christians to do now because so much of what is controlling or dominating society at the moment is is something we simply can't go along with. Um, you know, Rod Dreher, of course, argues for the Benedict option, which by some has been understood to be you know, run up a hill and form a monastery. I don't think that's quite what he's saying, but right. I, I think his point that the, the if change is going to come, it's probably going to come at a local level, at a level where individuals have relationships with other individuals. I think that's that's where the, the sign of hope comes, because what we say as a church is simply going to be increasingly obnoxious to those who make public policy in this and in other Western countries. The premise of uh, of all those movements we were just talking about is that uh, basically we can say what the community around us is saying it and still remain Christian and call this the gospel and, and call it the church. That's just becoming more and more implausible Partly because I've noticed a turn, uh, Carl, I'll test this with you. I've noticed a turn in the last five years in which fewer and fewer of the uh, cultural and moral authorities in our country are willing to go along with that. I mean, on the other side. And so they're just simply saying, no, Christianity is the implacable foe. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a candor that uh, that I want to underline in the larger society. Like, I mean, you, you eventually you got to recognize Christianity is either true or it's damnably false yeah. and horrifyingly injurious to humanity. There's no middle ground. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, however much you give, the radicals will never be enough. They, they In fact, if anything, they'll see it as a sign of weakness and, and demand more. Yeah. And to go back to, to a point we were, the two of us were making earlier on, I think that it, it ultimately comes down to a, to a clash between those who think the world means something and those who think, we give the world meaning. And there is no ultimate point of contact between those those two points of view. And I think that sets, I mean, not just Christianity, but anybody right. who holds to a, a religious system that sees the world as having an order uh, and a moral structure is going to find themselves clashing with a world that is increasingly dominated by technology, instrumental reason, and the idea that, hey, if we can do it, we should be allowed to do it. In the beginning of the Enlightenment, you had a figure like Immanuel Kant, uh, who was very concerned about ethics, very concerned about ethics, and uh, and had the concept, of course, of the categorical imperative. And you know, his his great concern in many ways was to explain the the moral sense within, as he said, as well as the starry heavens above. But but to explain the existence of the ought. And the thing that that I want to point out is that I I, I think the the ought is still there, Carl. I, I I just think the ought's been transformed, and so, uh, you know, I you know even where in scripture we uh you know we we come across a phrase like one ought not we ought not to think. Uh, well, but that's exactly what 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 the society is telling us. I mean, you uh, you transgress the LGBTQ revolution, and you're told you ought not to think that way. Yeah, uh, there's still an ought 
Yeah, I mean, human beings, uh, I think, made in the image of God, we have an instinctive moral sense. That sense can be perverted, it can be inverted, it can be given content that that should never be there, but it's still there. And I, and I think we see this in in something like the hashtag MeToo movement, ironically. Uh, you have a movement there that that clearly understands that offences of a sexual nature are more serious than some other offenses. I say to students uh, in class, you know, I could slap your face or I could stick my fit. I could penetrate your body by sticking my finger in your ear. And you intuitively know that that is less serious and less damaging than a sexual assault. Guess why? Because a sexual assault strikes you at the core of who you are in a way that those other things don't do. And I don't have to teach you that. You intuitively know that. And I see that as evidence that, yeah, as you say, human beings, we have a moral structure as much as we try to defy it. Nietzsche himself, you know, uh, yeah. fell in love with every woman he ever met, has a nervous breakdown, trying to protect a man, uh, trying to protect a horse being beaten by, by a man in Turin. Nietzsche himself couldn't escape ultimately some kind of moral sense. Wow. So uh, that, that gives some cause for hope, I think, that, that does, people do understand right how- and wrong at some yes. level. No, I, I agree, but the Romans 1 indictment is, is, is just horribly chilling. And so, for example, uh, the, this, you mentioned the uh, artificiality of a mere uh, sexual ethic of consent. And I think we both want to be very clear. Consent is a crucial and non-negotiable sexual category oh, yeah. uh, for ethics. Uh, any sexual act uh, violating consent is wrong. But that's not enough. That's not enough. And, uh, you know, so I've been looking into some of the cases, especially on college campuses and university campuses, where now there is the kind, this is part of what kind of splitting the Me Too movement. Now there's the concept of consent subsequently withdrawn. Yeah. Well, you look at that and you go, okay, so now the self is so contemporaneous that the self is who I am now. And I say, I really retrospectively don't consent. And you look at this, you go, you know, the logic to this is never ending. It's a, it's an infinite regression. Yeah. Yeah. And I've wondered that with transgenderism. I mean, let's just say that, that Caitlyn Jenner, we find out that Bruce Jenner in 1980 committed a murder. Could we charge Caitlyn Jenner with that murder today? Or would the fact that no, Bruce is gone. Caitlyn's a new person. Would that be a cogent argument at law? I suspect it wouldn't, but I can't imagine that there's any it's not basis tested. in law for, for saying yeah. that. It's, it's not fully tested. And, you know, one of the, I, I, uh, I point out that uh, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the central issues in the reasoning of a Thomas Aquinas was that uh, untrue claims don't eventually work. Again, that's just a natural law mm-hmm. principle uh, uh, summarized there. And so if you take this transgender theory, uh, and uh, you had, uh, and you're from the UK, uh, one of the uh, uh, books I read uh, uh, many years ago and then read other books by the same author was uh, James Morris, The Pax Britannica. Oh, yes. You know, Jan Morris as, is, is now, yes. Died just days ago as, uh, as Jan Morris. But uh, James Morris was in the British Army, was an adventurer who was with Edmund Hillary on the uh, on Mount Everest, and you just go to the thing and realize you can't go back and put in Jan Morris there. It doesn't make any sense. There was no Jan Morris. 
uh, in the British Army at the time. It was a James Morris. And and so and the, and then you had uh, the actor actress uh, change gender identity, you know, in Hollywood very famously just in recent days, but had been a lesbian by self identity and uh, and in a partnership with another lesbian. Well, is that other lesbian now straight? Yeah, I mean, that's, know, uh, and I think what 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 will probably happen here is that queer theory will ultimately be the default because once you start messing with the the sex binary the gender binary you get yourself into all all kinds of problems i have an example in the book that i drew from a feminist text where a lesbian woman's uh, partner transitions to being a man and her friends are now telling her she's straight and she has this dilemma do do That's i exactly affirm, the do I affirm my I'm lesbianism yes. deny uh, their transgenderism yeah. or do i affirm yeah. their transgenderism deny, deny my lesbianism that's it's incoherent it's crazy but being incoherent is evidently not a problem in american society right now <laughs> but long term just to make uh, thomas's point it won't work yeah and uh, that's one of the reasons why i think uh, you see and you mentioned the generation of 68 um that's a little older than both of us but they're being fired by the people they hired yeah, uh, they're being hounded down on the campuses uh, by younger faculty and and, and students. That old uh, liberalism is being consumed by this nihilistic. Uh, I mean, the New York Times editorial page, or where, wherever you look. But I, I hope with you that the Christian Church, local <laughs> local congregations of the body of Christ, can be oases of biblical sanity in the midst of all of this yes i i think that in in a world that's where the old ways of community have collapsed mm -hmm. but people still want to belong and i think the church can be a stellar example of communities to those who are crying out for for love crying out mm -hmm. for meaningful relationships obviously there's more to being a christian than just joining a church community trust in christ mm -hmm. is absolutely central but i think the church could ironically make itself a rather attractive place uh, for yeah. those who are who are lost and wandering at the moment to come and, and hopefully then find the truth once they arrive and what we want to say uh, to everyone both those who are believers and those uh, unbelievers to whom we get to speak is we have a uh, a rival message to you about the self, which uh, has the extraordinary benefit of being true. I uh, thank you so much for your work. Uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I, I want to say every uh, intelligent, thoughtful Christian needs to read it. And uh, it's, it's really a, an incredible achievement. And I'm uh, very thankful you wrote the book. And Carl, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. Many thanks to my guest, Carl Truman, for thinking with me today. And if you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.